as they are going, you can join me in God's Word, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. We are working through a series in this particular book study that we're doing on Philippians that I've entitled, For God's Pleasure. And that comes from the 13th verse. So I trust that as I highlight this and we move through the reading of these verses, we will together see the importance of God's pleasure in our sanctification, in our growth with Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, and I will begin reading verse 12 down through verse 18. You can follow along with me. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share my joy with me. Father God, as we approach this worship of you under the authority of your word, I pray that you will give to our hearts and minds a great reverence for the truths that we are dealing with this morning. By your spirit, as you promised to do, open our minds to understand these things and by your spirit again, apply them to our lives so that as believers in Christ, we can grow more and more to bear the likeness of your Son. And we pray to the end that in that likeness, we truly will be lights in a dark world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In this series of study, and you can follow along in your note sheet, I have been emphasizing the work of sanctification. In verse 12 and 13, that work is referred to as salvation. But we understand that our salvation begins with justification by faith. Then we grow in our faith. We mature in Christ. And the day will come when we're going to be fully glorified in the presence of Christ. But it's that middle part that we're focusing on here. That progressive work. That progressive sanctification. And that work started off in verse 12 with calling the church to obedience in working on that sanctification, applying ourselves to that sanctification. But it must be understood in the context of verse 13 that our work, our best efforts, if it's going to accomplish anything, is only going to be done by the enabling power of God himself. If we're growing in Christ, if we're truly maturing in Christ, it's because God is at work both in our wills, the inner man, and in our practice, the outer man. We're turning our attention this morning to a third part, verse 14, 15, and 16. And I've just emphasized the work of illumination because of how Paul uses the word lights in a world. And he's describing a work in these verses, verse 14, 15, and 16, that accomplishes an illumination of the gospel, an illuminating presence in the world by how you and I labor together. And remember, as we've been looking at this work of sanctification, we are not merely talking about our own individual progress in faith, 
but there is a corporate progress. And that's the context that Paul has been dealing with all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 27. How we relate to one another, how we're growing in Christ, how we're encouraging growth in one another in Christ. Paul has a very corporate context to this idea of our progressive sanctification. Yes, personal sanctification is necessary, but Paul has in mind a much greater sanctification that includes the whole of the church, the corporate growth of the church. We want to take that into account, especially in these three verses, because of the corporate sense that he continues to speak in. Verse 14 opens with a very clear explanation of what it means, I believe, to have the attitude that Christ had. And that I'm reflecting on the previous verses, the previous Christology that Paul has taken us on in that journey from verse 6 through verse 8 and even on through verse 11. The attitude of Christ that is in us is seen once again. Jesus Christ was given the most vile job on the face of the planet in bearing our sins, bearing all of our sins. The sins of his people were completely carried to the extent that the wrath of God was turned against Christ even to the point of death, surrendering his life to pay for our sins. And because of his perfect fulfillment of this work, God has highly exalted him above every name. And with that example before us, we are then directed to work at the growth of the church, both individually and corporately. And the kind of growth that we're to be working at is not left to our own imaginations. Rather, we are to be fully engaged in the sanctifying work that God is performing upon us. So we're not left to our own standards here as far as spiritual progress. The spiritual progress, the ethical standard, the growth in Christ is according to the work that God is doing. And this is going to become evident in our study this morning that our growth is not by our own standards. It is the pleasure of God that our focus of attention must be on. And because of of this, Paul continues by saying, doing all things without grumbling or disputing. I was reminded in my studies of that old story that many of us have heard before of the young child that was stubbornly resisting his father's demands that the boy sit down when he was standing up. And finally, as the father became more persistent, the child sat down and then he declared, I am sitting down on the outside, but on the inside I am still standing. And you as parents, if you've had children, you know this to be true as you look at the faces of your children when they do not want to do what you want them to do. They may comply outwardly, but you can see by the expression on their face they want no part of this. And that's the reality of human nature, I'm afraid. We see this in children, but as adults, we struggle with that same issue. I will behave on the outside, but on the inside, I am still resisting. Often parents, I think, make the mistake of being content with the outward compliance because it does tend to make us look good as parents. And we can neglect the inward obedience of the heart. And I hope we all realize this is not merely a childhood condition. Even in our adult years, we can comply outwardly 
while inwardly we protest. This is what Paul is addressing here in verse 14. We can talk about growing in Christ. We can talk about our spiritual sanctification. And sometimes we can want others to see, look at how I am progressing. But Paul cautions here in verse 14. There is to be no grumbling. Looking at the inward disposition of the heart. And the disputing is that outward reflection of what the heart is wrestling with. And it gives testimony to what we already know about gospel churches. We can be strong, vibrant congregations and still struggle with what we may think are just petty little things. Notice in verse 14, grumbling, disputing. We generally in the church community regard those as, well, minor little things, petty little things until we roll into the next verses and we find out how significant the Spirit of God sees this to His family. The grumbling and the disputing. And I trust that this will come out, this relationship between the commandment and the consequences is going to come out in our study. There are two commands and there are two consequences that we're going to focus on as we move through this idea of the church as lights to our community. The first command deals with our disposition, and the second command deals with our devotion. So let's begin there with the disposition of the heart of the church, the heart of the congregation. And by disposition, I mean the condition of our heart, the holiness of our character. Immediately following the command to work out our sanctification, Verse 14 draws our attention to the inward man, the disposition, and how that is reflected in our growth together in Christ. And what I find so striking here, once again, is the relationship between this command and the consequence. And I draw your attention to this because, again, we can look at the commandment as dealing with something of a minor offense until we recognize what that obedience accomplishes in our life, the consequence and the magnificence or the greatness of that consequence. This means that when the disposition of the church fellowship has gone afoul in this area, there is great harm done to the witness of the church. To be clear, this is no small matter. We may think of our internal squabbles and our minor disputes as somewhat small blemishes. We know them to be wrong. We know we're not right to grumble or complain inwardly. And we get into these little friction matches with one another, and we know that it's probably not not the right thing to do. But seldom, I would submit, do we see the vast significance that the Scripture gives to those kind of attitudes and those kind of responses, how we relate to one another. Notice that Jesus Christ views views these failures as a a rather serious family matter that affects the light-giving ministry that you and I are to have in the church. So let's focus first on the commandment here. Verse 14 gives to the church a very comprehensive law for us to live by when it says, do all things. That emphasis on all things without grumbling or disputing. This makes that commandment rather far-reaching in how we relate to one another on differing issues. 
Now, there's an immediate application to the work of sanctification that God is enabling within every believer. But it is important to remember that we are dealing with one believer to another believer. Relationships with one another. How we relate to one another. The contact we have with people. People that we do not always agree with. It is also to be understood that God is doing his sanctifying work on us through the circumstances of life. It is always amazing to me how what is shared in the adult Sunday school class corresponds with what we're going to be dealing with here this morning. And there were several points that were brought up this morning in the study of Acts 16. You're going to see them emerge in our study. One of which, which is the sovereignty of God in working in all of the circumstances of our life. And it was quoted from Romans chapter 8 even, that God works all of those things for some good. There is again the emphasis on the pleasure of the Lord working in circumstances, and working in other people. And you and I understand, as we relate to one another in this issue of grumbling and disputes, these are the two areas we struggle with, dealing with people and dealing with the circumstances of life. That's usually, is it not, what feels our inward grumbling and our disputes with one another. I think we're all going to agree that we don't always agree. And grumbling has this idea of inward murmuring and complaining. It's the attitude of being agitated in our hearts to the extent that we have thoughts or words of a complaining nature. Disputing among us has more the external expression of this kind of disapproval of others or our actions. And the word itself has the basic idea of what we've reasoned out in our own mind. This is always where it begins. I know I'm right. And because I am so right, I'm prepared to fight you on this matter until you see how right I am. That's the nature of disputes, is it not? I've reasoned in my mind. I can't possibly be wrong. God has made me such a reasonable and discerning person. Amazing that the world doesn't take the same glory in my reason that I do. And therefore we dispute. And when people don't cooperate with me, I grumble inwardly. Is it not true that we have found these things in our own lives and thought they're not that big a deal? And yet look at the consequences that Paul identifies here, not just in relation to one another in the church, but how we're viewed out in the world. Again, it was mentioned in our Sunday school class. The world sees how we relate to one another. They see how we live our Christian lives. And this is what makes this issue of sanctification such a corporate issue. How we relate to one another in context of our growth and sanctification in Christ. Both the inward grumbling and the outward disputing give evidence of a spirit of discontentment. It gives evidence of a spirit of discontentment. And it is important for us to see what direction this discontentment is aimed at. We tend to focus on the badness of the other person. We tend to look at the circumstances of life that we simply do not deserve. 
But again, as was shared in Sunday school, and I share again now, every circumstance and the people we relate to, they are governed by a sovereign God. And these things are brought into our life so that God can accomplish some good work. So when we grumble and we dispute, who are we grumbling against? The sovereignty of God, who's intending to bring these awkward people, these difficult moments into our life to grow us in sanctification. And not just to perfect my soul, but to perfect the souls that I am relating to. I think we would all agree that we struggle sometimes with differing personalities or differing decisions in other people, comments that they may make. There will always be differences within the fellowship. And in truth, while we think we know best and we have the better idea than our fellow believers, the church will not always go along with our personal program. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us, it demands of us, that we learn to work together without the grumbling and the disputing. This passage is calling us to a new standard of conduct and a new standard of thought in community, the community of the, uh, the family of God. And this standard is con uh, contentment in God's ongoing work as he uses the circumstances of life and the people within his family to bring about growth. My personal growth and the community growth of the church. I would just share with you a statement, a rather long statement, but made by Kent Hughes. And Pastor Kent Hughes is emphasizing the problem that we have so often in churches, struggling with our discontentment at times. He writes, critical complaining spirits are the historic bane of the church. If we're reading Paul correctly, doing all things without grumbling or disputing, it's a watershed state of the soul. Those who persist in such murmuring are not obedient to Christ and his gospel and are rejecting the divine call to work out your salvation. They impede their own souls and the souls of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They are undertoes to the body of Christ. So if you are one of these people, understand that when you finally stand before your Savior, you will answer in shame. I love that. I don't love it, but it's impactful, that statement that we are undertoes. We're dragging down into danger those around us as we persist in grumbling or these disputes. This is a passage before us that is calling our attention to a new standard of conduct and thought within the community. And I say new because it's much greater in its impact than we've given it credit for. We've diminished this thing that we should understand is so dangerous to other people within the community and dangerous to our own souls. Heaven forbid that we should become undertoes to our own souls or the lives of others. Paul adds, if you turn to the fourth chapter of this same epistle, Paul adds to this, idea of spiritual contentment in the sovereignty of God's work, focusing on the, what we might think of as the sour circumstances of life. Look at how Paul responds to these things. Verse 11 and 12 of chapter 4. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Boy, if we just stopped at that, can we say, I have learned to be content 
in whatever circumstances I am found. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled, going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering from need. What's he, what is he expressing here? Contentment with the sovereignty of God. That's why he can make that monumental statement, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Where did that come from? It came from verse 12 and 13 of the second chapter. We're called to work in a work that God is doing, transforming our will and our outward practice according to his good pleasure. This means that because of God's sanctifying power within, Paul could endure suffering and sickness and poverty. It means also that he could continue to grow and serve and minister without the support or cooperation of those who were opposing his gospel ministry. Paul knew that he would not always be in agreement with others. He knew that there were others that opposed his ministry. But we are not to be our grumblers and disputers when people in circumstances do not meet our expectations. The command to do all things without grumbling or disputing is an obvious connection with our Christian relationships. This is how we're relating one to another. This is how we are not to relate to one another. And as we work together for the growth and maturity of the body of Christ, we don't want to be those undertoes that draws other people into dangers, that draw our own souls into dangers. And this brings us to the consequence of obedience to this command. And that which heightens the seriousness of grumbling and disputing. Verse 15 presents the church with the purpose behind the command. See the two words, so that. That's a purpose clause. Paul is about to say, this is why we must obey. It is so that, as it says in verse 15, you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. This will be the consequence of our obedience to the command that we are not to grumble, not to quarrel. And this purpose is rather significant, it's rather extensive, and it reveals to us that grumbling and disputing are no small matters to the Lord once again. I think it is important to first note that Paul uses three descriptive words to identify the effect upon the church when we collectively obey verse 14. It's that which will make us blameless, pure, and faultless. Each of these words describe the way that you and I are to relate to one another within the family of God. This again is a corporate context. This is a corporate sanctification in view. In other words, running off to a monastery in an isolated mountain range is not how we're going to grow. It's not what Paul means here. We are intended to be connected one to another. But we must do it in this way. There is to be purity. There is to be blamelessness, faultlessness in our relations one with another. And this kind of purity and holiness is not achieved through isolation. We often think, I believe, that we're going to grow in Christ as we can just get alone with Jesus and with his word and I will see magnificent growth. Well, we will grow to some extent, 
But if we exclude the body of Christ, we're going to exclude all of the, the spiritual gifts given by the Spirit of God to the body of Christ for our growth. So I would argue if we isolate ourselves, we will be stunted in our growth. We won't excel in that growth. It was never intended by Christ that we grow in isolation, but rather in the context of the church. And I think this is seen also in the reality that Paul uses this context of, of us being lights in the world. Well, that just went the wrong direction. <clears throat> Notice how Paul puts this in these three verses. Not only are we are to relate to one another in this way, but as we relate to one another, we are stuck right out into the world. We haven't separated ourselves from the world. We are to separate morally but we are not separating ourselves physically from the world. It is intended that the church be a light to the world and that we not hide that light. That's what was read to us this morning out of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. We are to be lights, and you don't set a light under a basket. It makes no sense. The light is meant to be on a hill. And that's how Christ envisions his church. We are corporately relating to one another back to Philippians chapter 2, in such a way that we are bearing the light of the gospel before the world. This is not clearly about isolation. And friends, as Christians and as Christian families, we can make the mistake of thinking we will gain purity and holiness by isolating ourselves. I understand guarding our children from the perversions of the world. I understand that. I understand guarding our own hearts and minds and our eyes from the indulgences and the lusts of the world. But bear in mind we will find no gospel success if we isolate and hide ourselves under a basket and hide our families under a basket. I say that because there's a lot of homeschoolers here today and I believe in homeschooling. But we can make the mistake of trying to keep our family pure by keeping them away from the world. It was never intended that the church be isolated in this way. And so as Christians, we walk a fine balance here, don't we? Protecting our children, ourselves, from the indulgences and the perversions of the world. Paul even names that in this passage. This is a crooked and a perverse place we live in. But he is not telling us to run and to get out of here. We belong here. This is where we must be. And don't you see the picture here? The world sees the church. It's almost as if there are glass walls here. The world is intended to see how we relate to one another. We're no secret society. We're no private order. We ought not to be. Because we're supposed to be a light. But the light that Christ wants reflected is seen in how we relate, how we love one another. John chapter 13, verse 35. 
Jesus said that the world would know that you are my disciples by how we love one another. And I will ask you this morning, how is it we're to love one another? What did Jesus mean by that? That the world out there is going to know we belong to Christ and we belong to the family of God. We're followers of Christ by how we love one another. How are we to love one another? Jesus answered that in John 13 and verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. So what's new about this commandment to love? The model is Christ. And how did Paul say Christ loved us in Philippians 2? By sacrificing himself for us, even to the point of death on a cross. Has that not been the message that Paul has been pounding into these Philippian believers? The giving up of ourselves for others? This is how we express love. Not focusing on my own interests, but also the interests of others. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who set aside his divine privileges to take on the form of a slave to come and sacrifice himself for us. That is how we are to love one another, and you can't do it if you're grumbling and disputing. This is no small matter. But rather, when we put away these things, these dispositions of our heart that are so foul to Christ, and these argumentations that so give the wrong understanding of our fellowship in Christ, when we put those things away, we show ourselves to be blameless, pure, and faultless in Christ. <clears throat> this is a family description that the world should know as they witness how we relate to one another. No grumbling, no disputing, so that we prove ourselves to be blameless in our relationships, innocent impurity toward each other, and above reproach in how we treat one another, in word, in thought, in practice. And as we do this, we give light to God's love out in the world. Paul contrasts this, you see, in the darkness of the world around us, the perversions and the twistedness or the crookedness of the world. But once again, notice this little word, among. The word among. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom the church is in the world here, is it not? We're right there in this crooked, perverse world. We haven't run and isolated ourselves into this cluster of Christians within these walls. The world is intended to see how we relate to one another, how we exhibit love to one another. We can't be a light unless we're out from under that basket, unless we place ourselves on the top of the hill. In stark contrast, as God works growth in our fellowship with one another, so that we relate to each other in love, this will act as a beacon of light, His divine light. And as Jesus said, we must not hide that light. Now, not, we're not going out proudly or arrogantly showing everybody out in the world how well we do stuff. The point is, we're not trying to hide it. How we relate to one another, how we care for each other's needs, how we love one another, 
how we minister to one another. This is all in view. And friends, the world needs to see this in our marriages, in our family relationships, even as much as it should see us in the relationship of God's family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, children of God. And we need to show the world this is how the children of God love. This is how we relate. This is all taken into context of where Paul next takes us in verse 16. The devotion of the congregation, the devotion of the church. Because we have to reconcile something here. If we're not to grumble, if we're not to have disputes among us in order that we show the purity of our relationships, how do we reconcile the need to deal with sin among us? How do we reconcile the need to confront false teachers? Is there not going to be some grumbling and complaining in that? The church is to hold fast to the word of life. That's how Paul would answer it. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. This verse, verse 16, extends the illumination of the church community by, uh, by describing our devotion to gospel truth. We shine as lights as we relate to one another in love, but we also must shine as lights in our commitment to hold fast to the gospel truth, the word that gives life. And that expression, the word of life, refers to the gospel itself, but even beyond just the, the, the core gospel doctrine, it applies to the whole word of God, which expresses to us that word of life, which exposes both Old and New Testament us to the understanding of who Messiah is, who the Son of God is, and what he came to do, who Jesus is, and what he came to accomplish, as was taught in our Sunday school lesson this morning. I'm reminded here of the words of Peter in John chapter 6 when many of the disciples were listening to Jesus' teaching and they became offended by it, remember. And it says that many of those who were disciples or followers of Christ turned away from him and followed him no more. And Jesus said to the twelve, will you also go? And you remember Peter's response, right? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So what is Paul referring to in Philippians chapter 2? He's referring to the scriptures, the word of God, which alone can give to us life. The word of God alone can declare to us the good news of the gospel. The word of alone can declare to us who the Savior is, both Old Testament, who we should be expecting as Messiah, and New Testament, who now has been revealed as that Messiah. This alone is the gospel message. This alone is the word of life. It's the whole of Scripture that proclaims this gospel, this Christ to us. And notice what Paul says. The church must be holding fast to this. A strong grip upon this. The church must hold fast to this gospel message. And what this declares to us, we're holding fast without compromise, without diminishing this thing. We do this as we preach his gospel word, without compromise, and as we practice all that he commands us to do. Remember the commission of the church. We're to go out into the world, and, and we're to make disciples of all the nations, Jesus said. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the gospel goes on from there, doesn't it? Teaching those disciples everything I command. The law of Christ is just as important as the gospel of Christ. We are saved so that we can obey Christ. And he does expect us to obey. Holding fast to the word of life is preaching the word of God and practicing all that Christ teaches us to do in his word. So let's look first at the command to hold fast to this word. Paul adds this command to the one previously given in verse 14. And it extends how the church gives light in this world. We're to hold fast to the word of life. And what this suggests is that the church must preach and practice the same gospel truth if we're to have an effective gospel presence in the world. We will not be lights in the world if we begin to alter that message because we're no longer holding fast to it. If we want to give the world a gospel that's more palatable to the world, we're not holding fast to the gospel. And this is what Paul is saying here. Hold on to this thing. Do it without compromise. And in that regard, the church cannot tolerate open disobedience to Christ while it preaches a gospel that is calling us to make us obedient to Christ. And I say that because many in the modern church today are trying to preach a Jesus that's just not big on rules anymore. He's okay with everybody. Go ahead and do what you want. He's just a Jesus that loves. It's all about grace which is not the grace of Scripture, I might add. God is gracious to save, but God is gracious to give us his law because he loves us enough to see us walk in the footsteps of his son's righteousness. We should love the law as much as God does. We have an obligation to hold fast to the word of life at the same time that we're not grumbling and complaining. And when it becomes necessary to confront false teaching, that comes into the church. Or when we have to confront sinners that refuse to repent, then we must confront. So Paul in these verses is not dealing with our obligation to confront sin or false teachers. He again is talking about how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in the family of God. There are a great many voices in the church today that are calling Christians to embrace diversity of thought over matters that God's word speaks very clearly to. And this is why Jude exhorts the church, you contend earnestly for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. The gospel has not changed. It's not going to change. We don't dare conform the gospel to our contemporary times. The gospel is the same. We're called to contend for it, to fight for it. And this is what Paul told Pastor Timothy with the Ephesians when he was ministering there. You fight the good fight, Timothy. And the reason he told Timothy to fight the good fight is because he was defending sound doctrine against some that had rejected and some who had made shipwreck of their faith. All this to say, we do not want to draw wrong conclusions from verses 14 and 15. There is an appropriate time to dispute a matter. And this is why Paul adds to the church's light-giving responsibilities, you hold fast to the word of God. If you want to live in the good pleasure of the Lord, this is where it's found. 
It's in the word of God. And the truth is, as we hold fast to the word of life, the world may hate us for it. It probably will hate us for it. But the gospel light is only visible in the church and to the world as we hold fast to his word. We are no longer lights if we are compromising his word. This brings us to the consequence. Following the command to hold fast the word of life, Paul adds yet another purpose clause, giving us the reason that we are to obey. The consequence here applies not only in our holding fast to the word of life, but more to the life-giving quality or the light-giving quality of the church, which has ceased to grumble. It has stopped its disputing and who live in devotion to the word of God. This is giving us a bit of a window into the struggles of the Philippian church. There was some grumbling going on. There were some disputes. And Paul is saying you've got to stop that and hold fast to the word if you're going to be a light in the community. There are two words that I believe express the purpose for our obedience in these matters. The first word is the word glory, and the second word is the word vain. The first word is positive, the second somewhat negative. But the glory of the church's obedience speaks to the wonderful manifestation of God's good pleasure being worked out in our family. Paul says the day is going to come when I stand before Christ and I'm going to glory in the work that we've been doing here because it's brought about the sanctification of the church. As a pastor, Paul glories in this work even though it is in contrast to the shame that the world expresses against our faith and against our gospel work in Christ. The word vain comes up as Paul says, I'm running in vain or toiling in vain if I have failed. And it gives a kind of a negative expression that Paul uses to describe his ministries and struggles to bring the church along in its sanctification. The idea of running describes the effort and the energy that he puts into the ministry. The idea of toil is, of course, the struggling, the problems, the suffering, the pain, the imprisonment, the beatings. As the church is brought along by God in sanctification, it gives Paul confidence that his labors were productive and they were successful. They weren't done in vain. But notice that Paul is looking ahead to the day of Christ. This is a reminder to all of us that in this life, we may not see the full glory and the full success, the full productivity of our obedience in these matters. As we're working together in our sanctification, we don't always get the opportunity to see the full splendor of this work. That's why Paul says, don't forget the day of Christ. Because it's going to reveal the glory of this thing. You and I in our work and our ministry together, likely we're going to see a lot of the shame side of it because we live in a perverse and a crooked world and they don't admire for what we're doing. They don't take the same pleasure in what we're working on. In addition, we may not see the full success of our devotion to Christ in others, but the day will come when we are all as the people of God going to stand in the presence of Christ and full of this glory. Then we will recognize the success that we had not run in vain, that we hadn't toiled in vain, 
the glory will then be revealed for us. And remember, Paul's sitting here in prison. Not a very glorious position. He has suffered poverty and hunger. Not terribly glorious. He's been beaten in the city streets. Not terribly glorious. So he understands that i got to keep my eyes fixed on that day. Because we're not always going to see the glory in the here and now. It is the day of Christ that should motivate us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And as we keep our eyes fixed on the eternal glory of Christ, it should compel us to live with each other without grumbling, without disputing. The characterization of the world is present there. They grumble, they dispute. The church should not. And it's the day of Christ that should motivate us to hold fast to his word. When everything around us, sometimes everything in the Christian community is encouraging to compromise the word, diminish the word, we've got to keep our eyes fixed on the day of Christ. Hold fast. I'm going to stop there for a couple of reasons. We're out of time and I'm pretty much out of voice. So I'm going to have to try and um, work something out in the remaining verses for next week. So I hope you understand on that. But I'm going to jump ahead to some conclusion points that I hope we take hold of this morning as we look at this passage. These are some points that I think we need to embrace as we look at this text. Number one, sanctification has more to do with God's pleasure than our own personal standards. When we think of morals, we think of ethics, we think of raising our family with a certain standard. All too often, we can set our own standard. And again, you look at verse 14 and you realize what we may think of as a very minor offense is a very serious family matter with God. So please, don't make the mistake in your sanctification and the growth together with the church of setting your own personal standards, we need to seek the pleasure of the Lord in all of this. It is important for us to learn the purposes and the pleasures of the Lord over our own view of ethics. And this is why legalism, both with antinomianism, have been so destructive to the purposes of God in growing His church. Don't make up your own laws. Don't emphasize your own righteousness. And don't throw out the laws of Christ. This is the holding fast to the word once again. Second, holiness, please understand, does not come from isolation. It comes from a desire to please God and to live to the honor of his character. It is a matter of living for God's glory, and we do it without shame. We have no shame in living for the glory of Christ in this world that intends to shame us. The Christian church is to be no secret order, no secret society, our corporate lights are meant to shine so that God may be glorified. This is what Paul says. We're to be luminaries in the heavens like stars, the sun, the moon, giving light. We don't want to hide that light. And I'm not going to give you the third point because that has to do with next week's voice uh, passages. But maybe I could give you this third um, principle to go away with. Our devotion to God's life-giving word will find the church glorifying God in eternity. 
we're not going to see the glory of our work in the here and now. So sometimes I think we can make the mistake of wanting the glory now. And Paul is showing us, keep your eyes fixed on eternity. In the day of Christ, we must, we must and we will see that glory. And therefore, we need to run now. We need to toil now, expecting the glory that is to come. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this rich testament of your grace to the church, your sanctifying work. How grateful I am that we are, I am, not left up to this work on my own. But as we're found faithful to your word, working on the things that, Father, please you, there is such great success. And the day will come when your Christ returns and gathers this church together, and we will see that when we've been faithful to your word, we haven't run in vain. We haven't toiled in vain. Help us then, Father, in our relationships one with another and our holding fast to your gospel truth to be the kind of light in this community that we need to be for your honor, for your glory, and for your good pleasure. In Christ we pray. Amen.